Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of the hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. So 21 years later, we are remembering 9-11, and I was in New York City on 9-11-2001. We were there, and so what I want to do is preach to you the message I preached at the Village Church. It's a PCA church closest to Ground Zero. We were probably 14 blocks from Ground Zero. A lot of people that attended the Village Church lived right there in Battery Park City. As a matter of fact, one of my arguments in being very angry at God was that when I was called to be a pastor in New York City, which is something I said I would never do, so never tell God you'll never do anything. I think it's important for us to remember uh, today how God's Word addresses an issue as awful and traumatic uh, as 9-11 was because we've already shared some things that although they're not on the same scale, you can imagine if you woke up after taking a back fall and you realized, I'm paralyzed from the neck down. What would you need? How would you process that? How would you face your life unless you had something that came from God for you that gave you the courage to face what's going on? But uh, church, we have a problem in our culture. We have a problem in the church. And what is the problem is, is that unwittingly and unwisely, and a lot of times we don't even know it's in the water, but most Southern Christians have syncretized the gospel faith with stoicism, okay, with stoicism. So what is stoicism? Well, let me give you um, some voices. Um, don't let it get to you. Uh, You've got to rise above it. For many people in the church today, and I'm talking beyond North Cross right now, 9-11, oh yeah, that happened. <laughs> but there won't be any engagement of your, or your heart, their hearts around, is this a moment that we don't want to miss? Are we standing on holy ground of this memory and forgetting what happened at ground zero? You see, I grew up in a family where the mantra was, rise above it. As a matter of fact, tell you a little story. Both my parents grew up in the Depression. My mom lost, she was the only child, lost her dad when um, uh, uh, she was 16 from kidney problems that probably if the doctors knew what they were doing, he's, he would have been alive for a long time. He died suddenly. 
was through my mom and her grandmother, uh, my patron Saint Mabel, uh, into extreme poverty. I mean, they went from just barely making it to they were almost having to live on the street. So my mom grew up that way. Uh, my dad uh, grew up. His dad was a very austere and difficult man. Um, he was 25 when he married my grandmother, Essie, who was 14. <laughs> so we're talking down south, you know, talking Georgia. So you can imagine my grandfather, Clyde, who was 25. He's Joseph Clyde married Essie when she was 14. So they had that difference. So they didn't get along. They didn't really have much of a life, but they gave birth to two sons. Um, my uncle Charles, my dad's older brother, was just one of the coolest, finest people you'd ever meet, but he had a problem. He was an alcoholic. And uh, he went into World War II. It got worse. He came out of World War II. He had a son, two daughters. My dad, being five or six years younger than Charles, Loved his brother dearly, and if you've seen uh, the movie A River Runs Through It, my dad was the good guy, the good son, the hardworking son. Charles was a hellion, a romantic, nut, gambler, alcoholic, womanizer, you name it. He was constantly getting in trouble. So when my Uncle Charles died when I was um, 12 years old, my dad had been struggling and doing everything he could to get Charles sober, but Charles would not get sober. The only time I really saw my parents fight was over my dad giving money to Charles's wife because we didn't have much money, and what little money we had extra, my dad was shipping it to Helen, my aunt, Charles's wife. So at 12 years old, my dad says, Charles just died. He died an alcoholic, and that's all I knew until I was in my early 60s. <laughs> My dad died suddenly of a heart attack in 97. I never knew how Charles died. So here's part of the story. So uh, Charles ran Moonshine in Craven County. That's where Havelock, more, uh, Newburn, right there in that area if you're going down I-70. And my Uncle Charles was standing beside a still when it blew up. And he caught fire and he was burned to death. Um, so that's how my Uncle Charles died. And so at 12 years old, my dad just checked out of my life. He fell into a deep, dark depression. He was staying in that depression until I was out of high school. So my dad checked out. My mom was just a very bitter, hard, difficult woman. But just recently I read um, uh, this editorial by David Brooks. Some of you know him. He writes for the New York Times. He writes the op-ed piece. Uh, he's probably one of the few conservatives on there. He grew up a Jew. He's now a Christian, which is an amazing story. Uh, if you guys don't know about David Brooks, he now is a follower of Jesus. Now, he's very, sort of very, he, he kind of keeps it down. But I've heard him speak a couple times now. And he said, you know, whenever I meet a Christian, he said, if you ever need a copy of it, I'll send it to you. He said, I have 365 copies of Mere Christianity in my, in my closet at home. But David Brooks knows Jesus. And so he talks about a famous believer who died recently, Frederick Beatner. Some of you know him. He is a beloved writer by a lot, by a lot of people who love to read. He was, uh, a few years ago, he came and did lectures here at Davidson. But he was a guy that grew up in a very stoical family, so much so that when his father took his life, the mother was so ashamed they were living in New York. 
she moved, she took her two sons and they moved to Bermuda uh, just to get away from the shame of her husband, their father taking his life. And so you've got all this stuff going on. You know, you got all this stuff going on. Um, and so here's what Beatner said about his family. Our mantra was, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Um, they became masters at covering themselves. And now listen to how Beatner described his mother, because this would be my mother. He said, uh, the sadness of other people's lives, even the people she loved, never seemed to touch her where she lived. I don't know why. It wasn't that she had a hard heart. I think in many ways she was warm, sympathetic, generous, but that she had a heart that for one reason or another, she kept permanently closed to other people's suffering, as well as to the darkest corners of her own. That's beating right about his mom. That describes my mom to a T. You see, trauma turns off the lights inside of us. It turns off the light, the fountains, the faucets of real life. As a result, we live in darkness and in deserts of despair and of hopelessness. It's in this context that the psalmist wrote Psalm 46 because the nation of Israel had been through a lot of loss. They had been through a lot of difficult things. And he wrote this to encourage the saints, the people of God, to not lose hope, to really believe the promise that the God of Jacob is with us. He stays with us. And I want you to see, it's right here in verse 1, these things. First of all, that God is a refuge in times of trouble. He is a source of strength in times of uh, trouble. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see the footnote says that it says here, it says, um, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The word there in the Hebrew means a well-proved help. So all the prayer requests that we just talked about and people were praying for, the Bible says that God is a refuge and strength for them, a well-proved help. The old hymn says, he has proved himself faithful over and over, or and or. God is faithful to his people to show up and be a refuge and strength. He is a well-proved help. So I want to share with you a way of thinking about refuge. How is God a refuge for you? And whatever you brought in here this morning, whatever you're dealing with this, well, Jesus is the source of that being a refuge, but let me kind of drill down a little bit and give you more to think about, pray about as you go home. In Hebrews 7.25, we read this. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. When things are very difficult, when things are very hard, when things seem impossible, like being paralyzed from the neck down, Jesus is interceding. He's there. He's real. Um, it says here that he is able to save you and me completely to the uttermost. He is ready to reveal himself in ways we could never hope for or imagine so that in the midst of it, really powerful things can happen. A good friend of mine was leading a seminar. I was a part of a movement called Sonship. It's taught here in this church where we do weekend seminars for pastors and churches, people who are really struggling with their faith, and it was a weekend of renewal. Now, on this particular weekend, um, 
he, uh, there was a guy on the weekend who was being very difficult, being very ornery, very critical, very negative about the whole thing. He would just openly just, he would just pour cold water on everything we were trying to do. Now, my friend who was leading it was beginning to pay attention to him and his bad attitude about being there. Um, and so he's just observing him, watching him. Now, if I'd have been in this situation, I might have said something like this. Johnny, what is wrong with you? Do you see that God has allowed you to come on this wonderful weekend to be renewed? And all I hear you is being critical and cynical, like you've got a problem. <laughs> That's what I would have said. And uh, here's my friend Paul. He turns to the same guy, and he's watching him. Now, we're all getting coffee. It's in sort of a coffee time. And he just, Johnny's talking to somebody about, can you believe that speaker said that? That was bad. Um, he was just being negative. And my friend Paul says to him, hey, Johnny, can I ask you a question? Johnny says, sure. He says, Johnny, who weeps for you? Who weeps for you? Now, right at that point, <laughs> Paul would tell you he had no idea what was getting ready to come out of his mouth. And Johnny looked at him and goes, I don't know. And Paul started weeping for him. His bad attitude, his critical spirit, his negativity. Paul just started weeping for this guy. See, Jesus was interceding for Johnny through Paul. And he wanted Johnny to experience his sadness over who Johnny had become. Now, what happened right at that moment was just like, oh, my God. Because everybody in the room starts weeping. I mean, the Spirit of God fell. Have you ever been in a Spirit-led, emotional, good cry? Like, everybody's weeping. And the next thing that happens is we start praying for each other. We start confessing our sins. We start praying for Johnny. And the next thing you know, Johnny, from that point on, something happened that was different. Now, I could tell you lots of stories, but just recently I picked up a book which was dedicated to him because of the influence he'd had in this person's life because he loved Jesus so much. He lived out the gospel so beautifully. He's probably one of the strongest people I've ever seen on the mission field. He wrote a book called Sonship for East Africa. He is an amazing character. But it all started with a question, who weeps for you? Who's weeping for you? And that opened him up, and he was able to uh, care deeply. Now, here's what happens in our culture. Uh, very rarely do we take the time to weep with those who weep. We're in a hurry. We're ready to move on. We're ready to get people past it. we got lots of good things to say to people, good Bible passages, good food that we can deliver. But let me tell you, there's no greater gift like listening to somebody there's somebody who can sit with you and go, I'm so sorry. And the tears come, and they weep for you. Now, because I grew up in a very cold-hearted, traumatic, traumatized family, in my family, tears was a sign of shame. If you wept in front of my mother, you would get scolded and shamed for it. And one of the most traumatic experiences of my life with her, I started to weep. And she grabbed me and she said, you do not embarrass our family. And if you don't stop crying, I'm going to jerk a knot in you. Now that's Southern for speaking. I'm going to lynch you. I'm going to put you, I'm going to hang you. And I was so traumatized as a 10 or 11 year old. 
I just shut down, and I got mad. I go, I will never cry again. So, you know, the saying that men don't cry, you know, men don't cry, but you don't become a man until you learn how to cry. And one of the marks of the gospel is you learn how to get in touch with your emotions and feel deeply. And God has been on this amazing work in my own life where I've heard Jesus' intercession for me, and I've learned how to weep over my own sin. I've learned how to weep over other people's sin. I've learned how to sit with people when they weep. Rather than sitting there, the old me would go, because you're upset and you're crying, I'm sitting inside going, boy, I think, I'm so thankful this didn't happen to me. <laughs> See, that's, that's stoical. I'm glad that didn't happen to me. And I'm not going to let this get to me. Because you see, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in his heart, it will get to you. And it will pull you right out of yourself into the presence of Jesus. So I want you to go back with me. 9-11, it's happened. And right away, one of the young men in there, be like Reuben's age that's here, um, he, he came up to me and said, Clyde, I cannot sleep at night. This is after 9-11 happened. And he was an architect that built ships. So he worked for the Navy. He was in the first uh, floor. Their big complex for uh, uh, naval design was there. That's where he was on when 9-11 happened. Now, one of the things that happened at that time is, most of you followed this at all, is that if you were in one of the two towers, here's what came over the loudspeakers. Do not leave the building. <laughs> Stay where you are. Do not try and run. Now, it's one thing to go through trauma. It's another thing to get bad advice that causes you to lose your life. Um, and so, uh, so this young guy, his name's Alex, uh, he said, Clyde, I was in there, and I was, I'm, I'm a naval officer. I knew I had to follow commands, but everything said, get out, get out, get out. And so as he is running out of Tower 1, into these big plazas around the World Trade Center, if some of you got a chance to go there. As, he, as he's running out, he starts hearing these thuds, 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 and he starts looking around in their bodies. And he looks up, and he runs back under a covering. And he watches people hitting those plazas to their death. Do you wonder why he couldn't sleep at night? <laughs> he kept hearing the sound of those bodies hitting the pavement. Um, a lot of times we might not be the best in theology. We might not be the best at knowing what's the right thing to say. But I want to tell you, I've seen more powerful things happen for people in prayer when people ask for prayer and you get around them and you just pray and the Spirit falls. The Spirit comes. And during that time, Alex got so much healing. And I remember it was weeks later, he said, Clyde, I'm able to sleep again. I'm, I'm not an insomniac. I'm somebody who can rest deeply in Jesus' presence while I sleep. That is horrific. That's power. That's like, oh my goodness. Another guy was on in our church was on his way to a meeting. He had been out late the night before. He fell asleep on the subway. He missed the stop that where he was supposed to be at a meeting at 930 he ended up a couple stops down, and uh, he woke up, and he realized, oh, my gosh. And he was terrified that he had missed the meeting where he was supposed to be, and he was so upset. 
I missed them. I was supposed to be at that meeting. And then he realized the subways had shut down. He goes up above ground and he sees the first tower on fire. He struggled with survivor's guilt because some of his dearest, closest friends were in that meeting when the building went down and they died. And he had so much guilt and shame that he wasn't there with them. And we prayed <laughs> for this guy. And I talked with him and Jesus met him and the gospel came sweet to him and he was able to hear and experience God's forgiveness. But friends, when we talk about God being our refuge, here is his refuge, is the word of God. You put yourself under the word of God, into the word of God, and it will be a place of solace and renewal and restoration. And you'll know, my God is with me to heal me and to help me. He is a hiding place. One of the great poets a couple centuries back, George Herbert, said, every time you open the Bible, there is 1,000 surprises to be discovered in every passage of Scripture. And you go, really? I mean, I've been in some passages of Scripture like Leviticus and the genealogies, and, but trust me, <laughs> uh, there is 1,000 surprises that God wants to shower over you in his word. So stay there and say, God, teach me. What are the things you want um, to surprise me with? Our across-the-street neighbor just put our house on the market, um, and uh, Valerie and I are driving out of our driveway, and she goes, oh, Karen's selling her house. I am so surprised. Now, our granddaughter is sitting in the back, and she hears the word surprise, you know. So she immediately locks on that. Well, what's the surprise? What's the surprise, you know? And we had to explain to her, it doesn't mean you're going to get a treat or a special gift or whatever. But, of course, my wife does buy her a balloon as a treat, so she does get a surprise. But, you know, in the Word, it's a refuge. There are so many things that will surprise you if you'll go there. Now, what's one of the first things that people do when they get their lives hurt, traumatized? They, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not looking at this. <laughs> they, it's just taken away from them, and they have no ability to find the surprises in the ways that God wants to just help them realize that He is a place, a hiding place. The second thing you see is that he is a source of strength. If you've ever been through trauma, and most of you have, most of you, if again, if we did it, just all right, we're going to stay afterwards, and the Spirit of God's moving so powerfully uh, among us, we're just going to go around, and each one of us took our turn saying this, and I said, share with us your ground zero. What's your ground zero? When did it feel like it all burned down, when it all fell apart, when I felt like I lost everything? You know, for my dad, his ground zero was when his brother died beside a still in his 40s, and it blew up and burned him alive. That's my father's ground zero. <laughs> he had no way, he just had no way to recover. And for years, he was depressed. Now, what if, you know, we've talked about rebranding, um, uh, North Cross, don't get scared, you know, making changes, but you know, that's off in the future. But what if we rebranded North Cross to say Ground Zero Church? Come to my church, it's called Ground Zero. And most of you know when you use that and just flip it, it goes, for Jesus, Ground Zero was the cross. That's where he took everything that was against me. And I was listening to an Andrew Peterson song, uh, today while I was driving down from Winston-Salem 
and he says, and he says in the lyric, do you know how many people you have killed? And I'm kind of listening to with your words. How many people have I killed? Because this week I've had a couple people who work for me or work with me do things that really made me mad. And I wanted to kill them. <laughs> I told my wife, I said, I want to strangle somebody, you know? And she said, why don't you strangle yourself, you know, and then you'll get some real help. So, uh, you know, it's just, you know, it's that you, you know, you just realize. But think about it. how many people have you murdered in your heart because even though you didn't say anything to them in your heart, you said, you are dead to me. I wish you were in hell. I wish you were blah, blah, blah. And you start bringing curses down on them. Whew. Aren't you thankful there's a Savior who knew that you needed to be forgiven, that you needed to be helped, who went to the place where he would die for those curses by being cursed himself for you so that you wouldn't be a curser but a blesser of people? You see, when Jesus is a source of strength in our weakness, then we get so much help. That feeling of helplessness you have when you go through real trauma is something that if you're not paying attention, it will just undo you. The title of uh, the sermon is Seen and Soothed and Safe and Secure. Some of you know the name Dan Siegel. He's a child counselor. He writes for parents as a secular counselor. But he says these are the four key things that every child needs. They need to be seen. They need to be soothed. They need to feel safe, and they need to be secure. Now, you know, I work a lot with men, and uh, I can't tell you how many men have said this to me. My father never told me that he loved me. Now, what does that do to a man, man's soul? What does it do to him when he never uh, felt love from his father? All he felt was contempt and judgment because he wasn't good enough, worked hard enough, all those kind of things. But what does it feel like for a child who, need, who learns early on they're loved unconditionally? It's not about what they do. It's what they understand they get because they are the child of a father or a mother. You know, Tim Keller likes to tell this joke. It's sort of a joke. So his wife, Kathy, they'll be in bed and and he said, now, if Kathy was to say to me, hey, I need a glass of water, Tim says, I'd say, Kathy, get up and get yourself a glass of water, you know? Uh, Tim has three sons. I know all three of them. So let's pretend like his oldest, David, comes into the bed and says, Daddy, I need a cup of water. Does Tim go, what's wrong with you? Get a cup of water by yourself. No, his heart explodes because David's his son. You see, again, because of Jesus being our ground zero, it opens up the love of the Father, the adoption of the Father. So whenever we come to him and confess like we did earlier, Jesus is sitting there and sees us coming with our confession, and he's not going, hey, Father, don't look. You know, it's Mark again, and he's going to say the same thing again. So, you know, be merciful to him. Be kind to him because we know he needs a lot of help, okay, this Mark. So anyway, you know, he needs a lot of help. Uh, and so, uh, now what does Jesus do? He goes, Father, it's Mark. We love him. We adore him. 
And you know what, Father? Let's throw a party for Mark. Because Mark's coming to confess the same thing again, but he's repenting, he's sorry, he wants help. We know what he's been through. We know how hard his life's been. And we know that he needs a healing experience with us right now. Can we throw him a party and let's hug him? <laughs> you see, that's what confession's like. So when you understand that God is our refuge, you know, and he is our source of strength, is there anything more beautiful when you walk into a room and a person smiles at you and goes, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. And I love you so much. And you know what the Bible says? That for every sinner who repents, there's a great party. And so, you know, let's just say Mark is moved today to repent. He does repent. Uh, Mark uh, hears Jesus say, Angels, party time for Mark. <laughs> a party's thrown. See, this is a party. This is a meal of celebration. It's the beauty and the hope of the gospel. And that's why we know that the Lord is with us. And I just realized I'm running out of time, so we'll do part two next week on Psalm 46. But hopefully you sense today the invitation that no matter what you're facing or trying to help somebody else face, that God is a hiding place, a refuge, and a source of strength. And he's proved himself over and over throughout the years that there's a thousand surprises waiting for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and they will feel safe. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful today for, again, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the welcome that we receive. And we just confess we want to repent, but we don't know how. We want to turn from our sin, but it keeps just nipping at our heels, and we find ourselves trapped in our hard hearts, our unbelief, our cynicism. Lord, I just like, oh, I just be merciful to me, the sinner, this morning, and get our hearts ready now to come to the table expecting that you're going to meet us and help us and love on us. And Lord, uh, again, compel us and propel us out into the world where we have a hope that does not disappoint, a hope that Dylan can know as she passes from this world to the next that she will be welcomed with incredible joy. Jesus, uh, because of who you are for her. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.